Hey everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Battle of the Atom. My name is Zach Jenkins. With me as always is Adam Rack. Adam, how you doing tonight? I am great, and I am really excited because we have some fantastic guests on the show today. We do. In fact, today we have Eric and Julia Lewald. The people behind X-Men the Animated Series. Eric, Julia, how are you guys doing this evening? Doing fine. Glad to be here and Pretty excited good. to have the chance to talk with you both. Yeah, that's that's awesome. We're real excited to have have you guys here. For those of you who don't know, uh, these are the folks behind, uh, well, they were both large contributors to X-Men the Animated Series back in the 90s, as well as on uh, X Men TAS on Twitter and a uh, the blog X Men TAS.com that is just a beautiful wealth of knowledge and information of what X Men was what was happening with X Men at that time and especially the animated series. So we're real excited to have them on. Yeah. And uh, just before we get started with questions, I just want to thank both of you for being involved in this. Um, I was um, 12 years old when the show came out. And it was a huge deal uh, that my favorite characters were somehow magically on my TV screen now. Um, you know, and I think Zach, I've told you this anecdote that, you know, I went as far as to uh, record the animated theme music onto uh, a cassette and carry that around on a mixtape, um, listening to that on a regular basis. It, it was one of my favorite shows. So I'm really grateful that you guys were uh, able to get that up on TV. Oh, and that is hardcore right there. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, Zach, do you want to jump in with uh, with questions? Well, right before questions, I did want to give everyone a bit of a uh, just grounding. Uh, Eric, Julia, what were you guys' roles with X-Men the Animated Series? Well, um, I was in charge of, of the scripts, of developing the show and deciding what – the stories would be, and then all 76 scripts, either coming up with the stories and supervising the writers. Um, um, and it just, now that guy, it wasn't called it back then, but now that guy's referred to as the showrunner. So it was basically, I didn't, I can't draw. There are all sorts of wonderful people like Larry Houston and Will Minio that were leading the production side and the art side. Uh, but all the, I was responsible for all the writing on the show from the, the day we started till the day we ended. And I was one of the writers on that show and uh, got to be a fly on the wall for the whole five series run because he was handling most of it from our dining room table. <laughs> this is back in the day when that was, that was done. Uh, I had the privilege of writing Days of Future Past Part 1 for season one. And then later, uh, Whatever It Takes, uh, was Storm's Return to Africa and the appearance of the Shadow King. And then helping out coming up with stories, breaking out stories, but also um, specifically Beauty and the Beast as a personal favorite that then went on to our friend Stephanie Matheson to to write the script for. No, that's that's awesome. I mean, those are those are all episodes that really, you know, stick out. They're in memory. I mean, 
look, I I went back and I rewatched the show probably probably about a year ago. I finished it up, and it was crazy to me how much of that stuff still resonated with me. How much I remembered from watching it on you know Saturday morning repeats. So that's it's cool. cool. Well, that's great. We really a, a kind of a difference for us because we both had worked in animation for a while before this, and we'd seen a lot of almost all shows being written for little kids. I mean, we were very conscious of writing it for ourselves and for adults. And so we we're really pleased that 25 years later, people can still watch it because, you know, we, we fall in love with a lot of stuff when, when we're little and, and that's, it's, it's wonderful to look back, but having it last has really been something, you know, we're, we're really proud of because, we, you don't get a chance to do that very often in kids' TV. You should tell you, you know, dumb it down and make it simple. And in this case, the wonderful executives at Fox said, no, man, put you on the make it special. No, that's that's really cool. And that, that leads right into our first question on this. Uh, so, like you guys said, you guys weren't writing this, you know, just for kids. This was a bit more mature is a lot different than say like a G.I. Joe or Transformers that was big, you know, right before this heck, even a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which I think was the you know next big thing right before this was the next big thing. Uh, and one of the, one of the ways I at least noticed going back is you guys did a ton of serial storytelling. You had season long arcs, you had multi-part episodes. How did you guys structure that? Especially back in the days where TV was, you catch it when you catch it, and if you miss it, you better hope you find a rerun. I'll jump in here with one quick aside that, um, and I'll let Eric, he's he's got all the details on this, but uh, as X-Men, the animated series, was being developed, uh, it not that it was considered a long shot, but it had never been done successfully before. There, and, there hadn't been a success, really successful Marvel show before that, for the, you know, for the, they tried it. And so they, it really, when we got started, everybody thought it was only going to last one season. So Eric and his friend uh, Mark yeah. Edens were sitting around uh, pitching out stories to each other and came up with the original 13. Yeah. And it was presented to the rest of us as an arc, thinking yeah. that if it doesn't go forward, then this is the season, this is, these are the stories we yeah. wanted to tell. But, but credit or credit is due, the, 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 the people in charge of this are, 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 it's Fox television. That's Margaret Lesh, whose baby this was. She'd been trying to, to get X-Men on TV for almost 10 years and nobody would put it on because they all thought it would fail. They all thought there wasn't a big enough audience that it was nerds and, you know, wouldn't be, it just wouldn't work. She, when she became a head of Fox Kids, she made sure it was on and Will Minio, who she hired as the, a supervising producer for the first year, Will went to her and said, with, with my absolute backing, said, look, comic people love comic books. They're told serially. They're told over many, many, many issues. Let's do X-Men like that. How hard can it be? It's just like, uh, and he got, they got resistance from everybody. Advertisers. Yeah. Uh, 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 affiliate stations. Oh, this is crazy. If we preempt something or if somebody kid misses it, how are they going to catch up? And said, kids are smarter than that. They will be able to see, you know, previously on X-Men, they'll be able to see 10 second recap and they'll catch up and they'll know and they'll follow. And so that was about a two week argument. And to Fox's credit, they said, okay, we'll take this risk. And the problem is it takes 
like six seven months to write and produce uh, an animated show. And they come back from overseas. And what really happened, one of the reasons we started late was there were production problems. And so if you've got episode one and two and, and it's serial, if three isn't any good, which was the problem one, I think, uh-huh. uh, which had to be redone a bit, you can't show four yet because they're in order. So it it's a big risk. It's a roll of the dice on the part of the network that you can get them done early enough and have them stockpiled so that you can show them in order. And that's one reason it had, hadn't been done before, except for maybe Bold, which I love growing yes. up. Uh, but, and really hasn't been done much after, is that it's it's a challenge for them. They have to start early enough. They have to put enough money in to make sure they have enough shows in order. And we fought for that. And after the first season, because there were production delays, they said, oh, sorry, can't do it. So that's when we kind of cheated and put the Savage Land bits in order. And so we told, quote, unquote, standalone episodes for the next 13. But we had this 11 story thing going with with Xavier and uh, and Magneto. And that was our cheat for that. And then after that, they said, "Okay, you can't do that. And so we said, "Okay, well, can we do four and five parters? And they said, "Okay." So now we're trying to do longer connected stories because as writers, they're much deeper and they're much more satisfying. And they, it's, it's something that the industry really doesn't want you to do. And it's a continuing fight. Well, there, there is something interesting about how the way the show works is also very similar to the way the comic works. I mean, I've talked to so many people that came into X-Men at a random issue and then got hooked on the continuity aspect because they were confused. You know, so the same could be said about the show as well. You could tune into a random episode, maybe having missed a couple, and then you'd be really desperate to try and catch the reruns somewhere to try and fill in the gaps. Um I, I guess I'm curious also now that you had the green light to say, okay, we're going to do these long form arcs. Um, how was it decided that you guys were going to try and tackle at least within the context of the characters that you were using to do a lot of the classic storylines that um, X-Men fans really love, um, you know, and maybe wouldn't have expected out of a Saturday morning cartoon. Well, that was, that was a, ongoing discussion between us and and Marvel and Fox. Uh, Stan was involved. They didn't care creatively. Uh, Garage Entertainment was a partner. It was this little kind of patched together garage band kind of uh, production that was thrown together. Uh, and the two people that really, the two groups that really cared about uh, the storytelling were, were, were uh, I mean, the three writers the the executives at Fox and the people at Marvel because Marvel obviously wanted to protect the characters, um, and so what happened was the first se- the first couple seasons, um, the only one that we took that was like directly an adaptation from the books was Days of Future Past, and the reason that we didn't do more directly from the books is that we were just kind of thrown in the the deep end saying guys you're already two months behind quick come up with thirteen stories mm-hmm. and we. Had bunch of uh, X-Men fans uh, among the producers and the artists, and we talked to them about the characters. But to tell you the truth, when I started and the head writer who worked for me, Mark Eden, started laying out the first two seasons, we really didn't know the X-Men very well. We were just going with, like, you know, X-Men universe uh, reference materials. Who are the characters? 
And we just picked stories. We thought, uh, we said, okay, let's, let's, what's the most, the thing that would mean most to Rogue? There was always a char character decision. And we said, well, you know, maybe she might even give up her mutancy if somebody offered that to her. So we had, had that episode early on, sure. And what we did was we were trying to respect Marvel. So every chance we got, we'd pick bits and pieces from the, from the books or from the reference materials and say, oh, this person's related to this person. If we ever had a bad guy, we'd always pick, pick from the books. So we kind of created the stories for the characters and then went back and picked bits out of the books and fleshed them out. There wasn't really a, a push the first two seasons to develop uh, uh, famous stories from the books. That happened the third season when we did uh, 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 Phoenix Saga and Dark Phoenix Saga. And also writers would bring us stuff. They said, oh, you know, we love this thing with, with Asteroid M with uh, Magneto. Okay, great guys, run with that. Show us how that could be a great two-part story. So writers were bringing us stuff. Uh, Marvel was being supportive, but the only two, the only things that they ever suggested to us that did not to adapt were uh, Days of Future Past and the Two Phoenix Sagas. The rest of it was basically us and the writers and the uh, and the network brainstorming. Yeah, that, that's a, that's such a great insight into into the decision making process because I've always wondered about that, Zach. Yeah, well, I guess jumping off that, I think one of the ways that it shows you know you're taking characters and not really like welding them into place, but using them where they make sense with the cast you had was actually in uh, Days of Future Past, where instead of mm -hmm. having Kitty Pride, who you know inexplicably doesn't show up in this series. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, there's a reason. There's, there's a, re a reason. <laughs> I'm putting a pin in that real quick because I think we're going to circle back to it. Uh, but okay. you, you have a you have Bishop showing up, and you know he's known for being a time traveler. He's known for all that stuff coming from a bad future that's very similar to the future of Days of Future Past. So I think that's a very organic way that that worked. Uh, it really helped. Um, it really helped having. Uh, it was. It was very even-handed. There were folks who, and I'll admit I was one of them, really didn't know the universe of the X-Men. And there were other folks who were complete fanboys. And so there was a kind of, a, uh, there was a, a good tension between that. Like we would sometimes get the notes from each other, oh, so-and-so would never sound like that. And this, well, in the context of the story, we, we need this to happen. So between us, we'd all kind of figure out a way to make it work. And that included choosing to bring Bishop in. For that yeah. particular story. Yeah, and, and we, we also thought, I mean, there were things that were TV-oriented, like Bishop, uh, a, a physical person traveling rather than a kind of someone's soul, like Kitty Pride's mm -hmm. soul traveling back to the previous Kitty Pride. Uh, it just was, there's something about TV that, animation that's, that's more realistic and linear than comic books and kind of, can pull stuff like that off. And I think it was for the people, because we have to remember the large majority of people watching the show didn't know the books. We were, we were constantly told that, look, make sure you're clear and simple and straightforward and explain things well, because our, a huge part of our audience is going to, is not going to have the books to fall back on. So we tried to make things a little more realistic, like again, having a, a real I mean, flesh and blood, time traveler rather than someone's soul 
And also it gave, it gave us somebody that it was fun. He that could know the old ex, old Wolverine in the future. And oh, no, no, it just, it opened up a bunch of fun stuff for us, uh, having it be a, a flesh and blood person. Well, and it's, it's interesting that the, I don't, I don't know if the reference materials that you guys are working from were mainly from when you're producing the show, but it's always been fascinating to me that in watching the show, it wasn't an adaptation of classic X-Men. It was really also an adaptation of nineties X-Men. So we're getting characters like Bishop and Cable, and there's a variety of different kind of cameos that I would have never expected. And I got to say, being a fan of the books at the time and being a kid, I'm watching this show going, oh my God, did I just see that character in the back? background of that scene and that for me was such a wonderful thing yeah random oh, yeah, would pop great. up or members of x-force and you'd be like wait really they're gonna go there Can you imagine how, how the internet would blow up today if there was internet back then and oh, you could have yeah. gone did you see that did you see that <laughs> yeah, boy that tell tell your listeners imagine yeah. there was no internet back there then no it internet. just had started but but the credit for credit was due for you seeing all these incredible characters that wouldn't have come out of my mind. That came out of the mind of the lead producer, storyboard supervisor, the guy that was in the trenches for four of the five years, in, basically in charge of all the boards and all the production. That's Larry Houston. And he's he was the one. He was an X-Men encyclopedia. So what happened was we'd send him these these scripts, even an outline for him. He'd look at it and say, okay, we're... We're, we're at a place that needs half a dozen background mutants. We're not going to put random mutants back in. We're going to put in cool people that the fans will, will be able to recognize. And one of the interesting twists was most of those people we probably didn't weren't legally allowed to put in. Yep. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's Deadpool. There's, there's Doctor Strange. There's all these people that at the time Marvel was on the brink of bankruptcy. They'd given the rights to a bunch of things to all sorts of folks split it all over the place and so when, at the first month or two we'd write he would write in things like you know spider-man is seen in the background and we get notes saying from from lawyers saying you can't do this <laughs> so next time he'd just say okay a mutant's wrist is in the background and a web comes out of it uh -huh. storyboard there's no color and that's what goes and they all and it all went through so all those dozens of cameos probably a third of them were illegal, and all of them came out of the mind of Larry Houston. That is he so and the great. artists would sit down and say, "Who can we put in this scene?" Oh, I love that so no. much. Yeah. <laughs> now, on on talking about that cast of characters that you guys had in there, uh, you know, Pride of the X Men, which was a failed pilot, uh, came on just a few years before this, and it had a completely different cast i think what cyclops wolverine and professor x are the only ones to really carry over from that so you know with your cast being so different was the failure of pride of the pride of the x-men an influence on that or how did you uh how did you develop the cast of characters that you did when pride of the x-men happened it, it was a function of coming out of marvel itself and they were and this was when margaret lesh was working at marvel along with will minio and, I, and, Larry, and, Larry and, Larry, and Larry Houston. So those three people were at Marvel trying desperately to get at a show that yeah, worked. At a Marvel Productions, at an independent production company here in L.A. that it, They produced a bunch of cool shows, but somehow they could never – they're the people that tried for years. They could never get uh, a show sold. So Mar Margaret like grabbed some money from another show and made Pride of the X-Men as a pilot. Said, look, look how wonderful the X-Men can be. And unfortunately – 
the people making the decisions for Pride of the X-Men, the, uh, I guess Marvel production people, Marvel, whoever was involved, uh, were not the same people that were involved in making decisions with us. And to our eyes, and also to Will and Larry and Rick Hoberg, who also worked on it, who's one of our main artists, all the people who worked on it looked at it and said, oh my God, there are like 800 characters in this, we've lost the story, uh, uh, Australian Wolverine, what the hell's going on? That was absolutely what you think it was. It was uh, Crocodile Dundee had been popular uh, the year before and made a billion dollars, and so... Whoever was in charge, creative and it in charge, it it wasn't it wasn't said, oh, Wolverine has to be Australian. That, those were the kind of decisions that were being made. <laughs> they actually had more money for their animation, and they had just as talented people working on it. It's just the decisions they made just the north. So come 92, all these people who cared desperately about that and saw that as a missed opportunity, as a personal failure, all of them were just ready to put their foot down and say, this time we get it right. I don't care what you say. I don't care what toys you're selling or who wants to change this. We're going to do X-Men right this time. And they had that attitude going in. And that was crucial because there were half a dozen times where the show could have been changed. So these are people who literally would go, you know, had to went to the wall and put their, put their jobs on the line uh, more than once. And as a result... That's the X-Men animated series we know and love today. Yeah, and with, with, luckily, I and the head writer absolutely agreed with their vision of how, how the show we wanted. And so you had the this unusual, almost never happens in our business, uh, alignment of the stars where the network, the producers, the writers, and the artists all wanted the same show. There still were people involved again, half a dozen times that could have derailed it and turned it into something very different. Um, uh, you know, maybe you wanted something a lot cheaper and younger. You got a lot of got a lot of pressure the first six months before the show came out to make it younger and funnier and, and simpler. You know, what's with all this uh, sophisticated scripts and stuff? You're, you're scaring you're scaring people. Stop it! And luckily, we fought that. And when the show came out it was successful, everybody shut up and we just did the show that we wanted to do. But until it came out and was successful, there's always people involved, and there's a lot of money, so we have to respect and listen to them. There's always people involved that want to change it and make it something different. I, I find all this really fascinating because um, just being a consumer of this stuff at the time, especially after the Jim Lee uh, relaunch of X-Men Volume 2, um, I almost thought of the animated series as just an ex a natural extension of the insane marketing that was going on at this time. Um, you know, you have comic books that are being sold by, um, you know, Pizza Hut and um, candy bar companies, and you could get X-Men themed clothing. You know, it, it was a wild, weird time that really is not able to be replicated now. But I always kind of assumed that this magic thing came about because, well, we needed to we needed to sell toy biz action figures. So it delights me to hear that there was like some really amazing teamwork um, to get this creatively off the ground. There was, there was, and as someone who got to watch it all kind of come together, and it, it fortunately it, it was not a function of we've got a thousand toy deals in place now let's make the show. This is one of those rare occasions when that is the reverse the show came first yeah they actually didn't have they actually didn't have the toys ready i don't know if you remember but when it first came out 
there just was, there really wasn't anything on the shelves and they had to run and catch up. There was other stuff that was supporting the books, like you said, but uh, uh, Avi Arad's Toy Biz had the had had the the uh, the deal done, and we did get a call about after we finished the first seven or eight scripts from Avi. So, oh, can't you put in you know the the Wolverine phone or the the curtains or the pajamas or something? And we just said no. And luckily, luckily Fox had negotiated it, so we could say no. Uh, and there was even there was even it's in the book. There's a story where the head guy, our head guy that fought so many of the battles for us, Luminio, who designed the show, basically, um, he almost lost his job because Marv, somebody at Marvel made a deal uh, for, like, bobblehead toys uh, in Australia. And part of the deal was, you know, they got the money from Australia for, I guess, McDonald's bobblehead toys, something, some, some promotion, and Marvel had promised them that they'd all be featured in, in the show. And he, Will just said, no, no, this is just, uh, fire me, but we're, we're not ruining it by putting your stupid uh, product in, in the middle. You know, what 35-year-old what superhero has his own bobblehead, you know, by his, you know, by his sheets and, or, or picks up a walkie-talkie that has his face on it? It just, it just was, no, we're not doing a toy show. We're doing a character show. You can't live with that. Well, let's renegotiate and we'll all leave. But it, it came to that. It came to him wow. almost losing his, his job over it. I'm still hung up on the Wolverine phone. I, I wonder if, like, it stamps you when you want to pick it up. Or... <laughs> I mean, like, I might have bought one. That's, yeah. That would have yeah. been good marketing. Yeah. But... Well, I want the bobble. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, well, it's. I think it's awesome that we've got something that's so – that's such a creator, you know, driven thing. Like, it's really cool to hear that happen about the show. Now, you said something earlier, and I'd be remiss if I didn't answer this lifelong question. Why didn't Kitty Pride show up, like, at all? Well, it was, uh, we had the big discussion the first day. There's a huge meeting with everybody, with I'm Saban and Stan Lee and all the Marvel people and all the Fox people and all, you know, 25 of us in a room and this, oh, who's, who's, who's the cast going to be? And so everybody had various ideas for the cast. And there were three or four decisions that were made there that just pretty much happened to do with the current Marvel books. One was, well, we're really interested in, in Gambit and Cable. So we want to make sure to feature them. They hadn't really been not that much part of the thing before. And um, we're kind of high on June. It was... Jubilee or Kitty Pride, it was one or the other. We were going to have one teen girl. And so just, I guess everybody thought, well, we've got one teen girl. The, the, the cast is so huge and unwieldy as it is, we didn't have guest good guys that often just because it was hard to service nine or ten normal good guys. So there weren't that many guests. Um, and we had decided on, uh, uh, you know, the other team girl. And part of it, I think, was everybody was conscious of the failure of, of the Kitty Pride pilot. Whether that wouldn't have made any difference to the fans, I don't think. But that was in the back of the producers' minds, I think. Yeah, from a marketing perspective. Um, I, I wanted to ask, in terms of 
you know, where you think you guys fall in terms of the history of the brand, um, you know, since the show has been on the air and then aired in many iterations, um, in, in lots of reruns, um, you've had multiple animated series. You've obviously had the movie franchise and all of its spinoffs. Um, now we've got actual live action X-Men on TV. We've got Legion, um, which Zach covers on another podcast. Um, we're now getting a, a Fox live action series in the fall. Where do you guys feel like you fall in terms of being, um, a chapter in that history that maybe led to some of this stuff actually being able to happen? Yeah. Julia always calls, calls us the bridge. I, I, I'm chomping at the bit here to get in on this just because in the history of entertainment, look, it's a kid's cartoon show. You know, we hear that, we get that, we understand but looking back on it 25 years later, and at the time, it's something that we're all very proud of, but also I truly believe that it was the way into the X-Men universe. I mean, the whole universe, the comics, everything, for a lot of people when it came out in 92. And then reintroduced people to it as they found the show over the next you know, several years. And then because of that... I think we wouldn't have the billion dollar franchises of films. We wouldn't have the TV shows on live action today if it weren't for X-Men, the animated series. I will stake my claim on that. Yeah. Yeah. We, in, in writing the book, I was looking back and guys, and you guys can do this kind of research. It's, it's really pretty simple to look at superheroes, comic book superheroes had tried to be part of the larger uh, world culture. Every I mean, like, I love the like, 19, early 40s uh, Fleischer Superman cartoons. Those were cool. And then there was a the Superman uh, live-action show in the 50s, which uh, I saw reruns of when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a Batman show in the 60s. But you notice I'm saying there's one. It's like I was looking for it, and I was going like decade by decade. You go a whole decade, and then maybe be three or four successful superhero shows over the kid, uh, uh, movies over the course of 10 or 15 years, like say a couple Batman, a couple Superman or whatever, no Marvel movies, uh, Marvel TV shows that maybe like the old, a lot of the animated ones, they really didn't do very well early on in 60s, 70s and 80s, uh, where the, the, the attempts at them. Um, and then the thing that happened that, you know, we really, we really absolutely believe after looking back at this, that, that superheroes were, ready to burst out, and that 89, 90, 91, 92, in 89, the Batman movie came out, Tim Burton movie, that allowed Fox to say, okay, we take a chance on Batman and Maximum. This hasn't really worked before. You know, Super Friends was okay, but there really hasn't been a breakout cartoon. There hasn't been a breakout uh, a live action show. There hasn't been a Marvel movie We'll take a chance on these two shows, and we think that we and Batman showed Hollywood that that the world could could appreciate uh, superheroes in television and movies. And af after that, you know, Katie Bar the Door is probably more successful uh, uh, superhero movies this past year than there were on average per decade back in the in the last century. It just it's exploded. And we're serious when we told you when we were coming out, people really were just, oh, this thing. We didn't have contracts past our first year because they just thought it was going to be eh, be like the other ones. It'll, it'll flame out. 
and they even resisted making the X-Men movies after the success of this, just because their movie division thought, ah, you know, some little kids will go through it. Uh, Margaret Lesh had a hand in talking them into do that as well. Obviously, there's been this immense success, and credit to all the people that did it, but when, when we were doing it, nobody, nobody believed this was going to be successful. Absolutely not. And we really think that we helped make it plausible to people out here in this sometimes dead-headed town uh, to think that the, the superheroes could be central to the culture. And I really think they've become that. That's, that's awesome. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. This was one of the big, you know, flag bearers that opened the floodgates for this glut of superhero everything we have today. You know, once upon a time, you know, when you look at films, there are genres, there are Westerns, there are musicals, and superhero was it not a genre until last 15 years. It didn't even exist. And that's, I think, a function of what we just talked about. But yeah, and it, and it took, took off, and and it, was, it wasn't just for kids, and that just, and it was, it's, it's very satisfying. Some people are horrified that it's become such a huge part of the movie business, but it is. It just never stops. I mean, every year, there are more, I mean, people think, oh, the audience is going to get tired of it. They've seen this a hundred times, and then the newest Marvel movie comes out. Again, credit to credit is due. Those people are amazing at shepherding their characters through these different worlds. And it just, it, it, it somehow sticks with people. And I can't explain it, but uh, we try a little in the book. Grateful to be a part of it. Yeah. that That's awesome. I know we've, we've kept you a bit, and I just wanted to get one last question in here. Uh, one that I think is real relevant to kind of everything you've been saying. Uh, so your lead character on the show, I mean, it's an ensemble cast, but come on, the lead character of X-Men is Wolverine, who is a man who's best known for having knives in his hands and stabbing people with mm-hmm. them. So how did you deal with standards and practices when you're doing a kid's show about a man who superpower is owning knives? Slashes people. <laughs> Believe me, it was... We were really lucky. Again, you're talking about one person can screw up a show. The standards and practices lady at Fox was wonderful. She was uh, she liked books. She was serious about storytelling. She'd worked in primetime some, so she wasn't just you know focused on little kid stuff. But we started this with like a long list of stuff. Can't kill anybody. You can't. We can't see any blood. You can't. Uh, stab anybody. You can't punch. You can't punch anybody. <laughs> you can't. You can't. Uh, you you can't just be vengeful uh, without immediately showing remorse for it. Long, long, long list of stuff that they were used to saying you can't do uh, in a kids show. And we, I just sat down. I had longest memos, five, six page memos per episode with Avery Coburn. Is her name? She's wonderful. And so thoughtful. And she, and I said, look, I've got to show, if we're going to show Wolverine at some point regretting his, you know, some of his action, you've got to show his ferocious action. You just have to. And we would find ways around him using his claws. And that was obviously very restrictive. But one of the ways we balance that is that we really tried to make it an ensemble piece. When people ask who's your favorite character, we get everybody. The whole, 
get everybody gets listed. Jubilee, Beast, anyone. My favorite character was Xavier. Because uh, Xavier was, it was like he was the dad holding all this family together. And so each of these, we tried not to make it the Wolverine and the X-Men show, even though he's so compelling a character. Len Wein, thank you for this. I mean, who knew? But he's so compelling a character. We had to consciously try to give stuff to other people because he's so easy to write for. Uh, he's, you know, he just, he bursts off the screen. And so one way of dealing with his claws is just have stories that, that don't require him. Oh, the other, the other one, Julie's about to jump in on. This is brilliant. Wilhelmina, this, we had a fight with Marvel over this. The way we were able to integrate your Wolverine claws was, was Sentinels. Sentinels. Well, I Broadcast standards will let you rip apart a sentinel, but not a person. So we got we we uh, Marvel really st got mad at us at first because we we're using the Sentinels as our first villains instead of Magneto, who was their favorite. And we wrote him back and said, "Guys, you can do all sorts of stuff in the books that we can't. You just don't understand. This is a dynamic thing. If you want Wolverine to have any presence in this show, we have to have things he can rip apart." And it's not going to be Magneto, and it's not going to be people. It's got to be robots. So we're starting with the Sentinels. We're sorry, but that's, it's, it, it's beyond discussion. We need this. So to answer your question simply, the Sentinels is what will let us use Wolverine. And also we're talking about Wolverine now because of the incredible voice talent of actor Cal Dodd, who are Wolverine his voice. His voice. He's the voice I hear in my head when I see anything Wolverine related these days. You know, if I read a read again or something, I hear Cal Dodd. It's such a brilliant idea to use the Sentinels. I mean, it brings me back to uh, 80s G.I. Joe and how the Cobra foot soldiers all turned out to be robots once you shot them. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it gives you a little bit more leeway. It also provided a chance in a way to ground the show um, out of the gate in what became, I think, an incredibly compelling allegory that if you're a kid, eh, I don't care, but I'm not going to watch it for that. But as you get older and you watch it, you realize that the mutants are being persecuted and the Sentinels are the means of their persecution and by the people who are scared of them. And it becomes this whole uh, rich uh, story scheme there. Uh, they, become, it, they, become a, they become a walking metaphor for people's fear of mutants. If you started with one of the, uh, if you started with the, uh, any of the other uh, villains, it would have been more, oh, it's mutant versus mutant, and we're going to have a big fight this week. But, that wasn't what but it was. We, want, we wanted the human mutant tension to be this, at the center of the show, because, you know, there's all sorts of different ways that they've attacked it in the books. We picked that way because we thought it would be best for the show. That's that's awesome. That's incredibly insightful. And honestly, this whole conversation has been just phenomenal. Uh, so as, as we wrap up, first off, I want to thank you guys, Eric and Julia, for coming on, for talking about X-Men, the animated series, uh, for making that, because that's fairly important to, I think, everyone who listens to this show. I haven't, I haven't heard anyone who said, oh, no, forget that place. No, people, people loved the animated series, and it got so many people into X-Men. So thank you guys for that, first off. Glad to be a part of it. And thank you for remembering it that way. <laughs> no, that's that's great. Now, uh, 
uh, as we wrap up, you guys are pretty involved online. So where can people uh, where can people find you guys online if they want to know more about the animated series or stuff you guys are doing? Well, funny you should ask. <laughs> we are on Twitter at X Men TAS, and that stands for the animated series to distinguish it from anything else. So X Men TAS on Twitter, and also X Men TAS dot com. Uh, we have our own blog there, and uh, our Twitter feeds on that. Uh, Eric, when he can, uh, gets a specific blog up there. Uh, if you're interested in anything from Larry Houston's Easter eggs, all the way back to you know, bits about how some of the cast was chosen, or just our own thoughts and insights, it's available at X Men TAS in blog form. At dot com. Sorry, yeah. X Men TAS dot com uh, in blog form there. And and the, the the big thing for me now because I just finished it and I'm I just collapsing from the effort. Um, uh, we've got a book coming out uh, and uh, about the making of the show to celebrate the 25th anniversary. And the name of the book is fans I think appreciate this. Drum roll, please. Uh, previously on X Men <laughs> is the name of the book. That's great. And it's subtitled uh, "The Making of an Animated Series," and that kind of hints back to the, your questions about putting things serially and some of the risks that were taken. And at first the publisher thought, that's kind of weird. I said, no, 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 no. But for us, that's like space, the final frontier. <laughs> that's what you heard the first time, you know, before each episode at the starting of each episode. So we think the fans will, will get, will get them the book title. Yeah. Well, that's great. I think we're both looking forward to reading that when it comes out. Oh yeah. I, I cannot. Yeah, it, should, it should be out. It's supposed to come out in November. And the publisher's name is Jacobs Brown. They do a bunch of start start do, do a lot of pop culture books. Uh, they're a California publisher, and they've been really good to work with. Um, and they've got a, they've got a website and a store It'll be available on Amazon. But we're hoping to take it to a bunch of cons and and uh, comic book stores and things and events for signings. But maybe in a neighborhood near you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, We'll, we'll, with with luck, we'll we'll get out and about with it. But yeah, starting should be should be available by mid November. That's awesome. We're looking forward to that. Yep. Uh, so uh, as we wrap things up here, uh, if you like the show, you can uh, you know follow me on Twitter at Xavier Files. That's where we'll put up the show every week. You can also go to my website XavierFiles.com, where we have new articles about different X Men every single Thursday. As well, uh, you know, there's some other stuff. Now, uh, Adam, where can people find you online? Um, as always, guys can find me on Twitter at Arthur Stacy, and uh, I'm just wrapping up Bish and Jube's Age of Strife over at AdamRecktumbler.com. Um, who knows? By the time this airs, I may actually be finished the last page, so we'll see what happens. But uh, stop on by. Right. Now, this podcast and everything that's done by Xavier Files is brought to you by our Patreon where good folks like you, you know, go on to patreon.com slash Xavier Files and pledge as little as a dollar a month to support everything that happens here. Uh, so we really appreciate that. If you can't support the show monetarily, if you want to log on to iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating and review. It's a really good way to let us know what we need to improve on, how we want to change, and just let other people know that you like it. Uh, that about does it for us. Uh, Eric and Julia, again, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a great experience. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Zach. You. We, we, we had a great awesome. time. Awesome. 
Well, this has been Battle of the Atom. We hope you survived the experience. Get it!